Uh, Paul, second missionary journey. Last week, we looked at him in three different cities. Huge, long mission trip he takes. It's several years, probably uh, three years, two and a half, three years that he's gone from Antioch. We saw him in Philippi a couple of weeks ago where he's beaten, thrown in jail, miraculously, miraculously delivered, then he's expelled from the city. Last week, we saw him in Thessalonica and then in Berea and then in Athens. He hits all three of those cities in Thessalonica and in Berea. Um, he's threatened in both of those places, and so he's, kind of, he's scooted out of town um, kind of surreptitiously uh, so nobody knows in order to preserve him. And he winds up in Athens, and we looked at that last week at, in D10, who's in charge of religious and moral and ethical matters of the city. And he goes, it's the longest speech that we have of Paul speaking to an audience without any Jewish or Christian background. And we talked about that some and uh, we said he met with some level of frustration because they, they didn't have a, a category for the resurrection. But there was some fruit in each of those cities. And for us, we said the two major takeaways is everybody somewhere. Everybody somewhere in their relationship with God. God desires all men and women that he created to come into a relationship with him. And therefore, everybody somewhere in the process. And as people who are called to be his witnesses... That's Acts 1-8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So that's the big umbrella concept for us if we're, as we're looking through Acts, is God's called and desires each one of us to be a witness. If we can discern people's heart, it makes our witness more effective. If we have some sense of where people are, then it makes us more effective in what we're sharing. As we talked about that, and we also said we're, we're part of everybody, we're somewhere too. And we said, for us, we want to make sure we have hearts that are soft. We want to make sure we've got hearts that are receptive to what God is saying to us now. What is God saying to us in the moment? And in an affluent culture, we said that the the biggest temptation for us are are weeds. The biggest temptation, um, good things that tend to sprout up and compete with the Word of God. I don't just mean the written Word of God, but God's leading of you on a day-by-day basis. The things that can tend to choke that out are good things that compete with our time, um, com, com, excuse me, compete with the word for our time and our attention. So that's what we talked about last week. And this week we're going to look at the close of Paul's second mission trip. He's going to go to Corinth, which is a huge city, major cosmopolitan area, lots of trade. It's a very affluent city. It was also a very wicked city. There's actually um, a label called to live. It was. There's a Greek word that means to live like a Corinthian, which means to live immorally. And so you've got a lot of sexual immorality that's happening in Corinth. Uh, you've got temples to Aphrodite, the god of love, and several other uh, pagan gods as well, in addition to the fact that you've got all this money flowing through the city. And then we'll look at, again, the close. Paul hits a couple of places on his way home very briefly. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 18 from verse 1 to verse 22. Verse 1 to verse 22. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. 
But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader in his entire household, believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent for I'm with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged as persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centurae because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So that's the close of Paul's second mission trip. Lots of cities there. There's a map on the screen. You can see the, all the cities that we just mentioned. We go to the, the one at the end. Dan, I, I went out of order completely. I think there's one at the end. Um, he was in Corinth for about a year and a half. Then he goes to Ephesus. He's there very, very briefly. Then you see he travels down to Jerusalem. That's the mothership, tells everybody what was, you know, gives them a report. Then he goes up to um, Antioch, which is the church that he was sent from. So, that, so he makes that huge loop that you see there in purple. And the parts that I just read are those stars. He goes from Corinth a year and a half, Ephesus very, very briefly. Then he goes to Jerusalem and to Antioch. One thing that was interesting to me about this little leg of his trip when he gets to Ephesus, he'd actually tried to go there before. You may remember in uh, chapter 16, verse 6, we read that the Holy Spirit kept, or the words actually prevented, the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from entering Asia, and that's where he wanted to go. Ephesus was the biggest uh, city in that area at the time, and that's where he wanted to go, and he couldn't get there. And so when he, he does land, he can only stay there for a short time because there's a window that you can sail. And once that window's closed, you've got to wait through the next season before it's safe to sail again. So he's trying to get home, and in order to get home, he's got to, he's got to catch the boat. So he says, I, I can't stay long. And they say, well, will you please come back? It's interesting. He says, if it's God's will, we don't see him talking that way prior to that uh, statement in Acts 18. He's tend to kind of go where he's wanted to go. But because that door had been shut for him in the past, this time he says, I don't know. I tried to come before, and it didn't work. We'll see if God lets me come back again. And we'll see next week that he does actually wind up spending several years in Ephesus. So starting all the way back at the beginning, Corinth is 50 miles from Athens. Paul travels there by himself. Remember, uh, Timothy and Silas are with Paul, but they don't go with him to Athens. He snuck out of Berea because the Jews there want to kill him. And uh, 
he alone it goes down to Athens, and he says, I want uh, Timothy and Silas to meet me later. And they do wind up meeting him in Corinth. But he travels those 50 miles on his own, and he gets there, and he meets two friends. He meets Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila is the man. Priscilla's the wife. They're married. If you read through uh, Paul's letters, he refers to Aquila and Prisca, P-R-I-S-C-A, the same person as Priscilla. It's, it's like William and Bill. Prisca is her formal name. Priscilla is her nickname. And Luke re- refers to them as Aquila and Priscilla, Paul to Aquila and Prisca. But they're, uh, they're tent makers. So they're, they're, they seem to be pretty successful in their business. They had a branch in Rome. They closed it down, or, or maybe they gave it to somebody. They start one in Corinth, and either they close it down or they give it to somebody, and they're able to open another branch um, in Ephesus when Paul goes there. They're Christians before they meet Paul. They've been kicked out of Rome in 49 A.D., so that gives you a timeline for everything that we're looking at today. In 49 A.D., there's an emperor named Claudius, and he kicked all the Jews out of Rome because he, according to, uh, there's a historian named Suetonius, And he said there were riots or uprisings caused by Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Nobody knows who that is. It may be some guy who was lost to history. A lot of historians think that it was a typo before there were typewriters that uh, who he meant, who Suetonius meant to say was Christus, C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S, which is Latin for Christ. And as we've seen through Acts... The M.O. for Paul is to go to a synagogue and to preach the gospel for people to, uh, some of the people are very receptive and appreciative of what he's saying, and some of the people get very upset with him, and they crank up the pressure, and they run him out of town. So what many historians think is that's what was happening in Rome. There were some Christians who were there, they were going to the synagogues, they were preaching the gospel, and it was causing an uproar. And we've said before that was a big no-no in these Roman cities, and so Claudius just said, you're all gone. And so he he expelled all the Jews in 49 A.D. Priscilla and Aquila wind up back in Corinth with Paul. Interesting, um, her name is mentioned first four out of the six times we we read about the couple in the New Testament, which says something about her leadership and her prominence in the church that she's mentioned before her husband, which is highly, highly unusual in this time for that to happen. So it says something about her. We don't know a ton about them other than they seem to be successful in business And they seem to have a pretty significant ministry as well. They seem to host churches in their houses. We'll see next week they actually teach Apollos, who's an apostle. So they do have some significant ministry, even though we just see about six sentences about them throughout the whole New Testament. So Paul is with them. Paul has a skill. He has a trade. Uh, It was considered improper for a rabbi to take money for his teaching. And Paul never did that. So every city that Paul went to, he didn't allow the people in that city to pay him. So he either went back to leather working. Your Bible might say Paul was a leather worker. So that's, that's the big field, and making tents would be a specific. So education, eighth grade social studies. So that's kind of the same thing. It's just a, a subset of this larger field. Paul would have been skilled in that. And as he moves from city to city, when he needs to, he just falls back on that skill. He falls back on that trade in order to pay the bills. He never asked for the people he's working with to pay him. And there was, a, there was a whole class of people during this time that were professional speakers. And they would, they would travel around from town to town. And, and, for instance, if you were having a dinner party, you were well off, you would hire one of these guys to come in and entertain your guests. 
So you would eat, and at the end of your meal, this guy would stand up, and he would give a speech. And it would either be funny, or it would be sad, it would be moving, or emotional, or tragic, or dramatic. These guys were, they were professional speakers, and they took a fee for what they said. And, and the, the idea over time was you could kind of get them to say what you wanted, because you're paying them. And so Paul makes this huge point to say, that's not me. I'm not taking a dime from y'all. I don't want you to think that the reason I'm coming to you and telling you this message is so you'll pay me. And I don't want you to think that I'm manipulating my message or changing my message in order to make you happy so you'll pay me more. So he doesn't let anyone who he's, we'll say, ministering to pay him. And so sometimes that means he's got to provide for himself. And other times he would, let, he would let other churches pay him or give him money. They didn't pay him. They gave him money with support. And we see that when Silas and Timothy wind up meeting him in Corinth, they're bringing money. They're bringing money from the church in Philippi where he had been several months before. And so it says once Silas and Timothy get there, then Paul is able to devote himself exclusively or fully to the gospel. He doesn't have to work anymore on the side because they've brought him money that he can live on. And so he does allow that. So he would allow, so he's in Corinth, he would allow the Corinthians to send him on to the next city, which was Ephesus. Y'all can give me money to go to this next place so that I can work there for free. He would allow that, but he would not allow them to uh, cover his expenses while he was in their town. Does that make sense? So for us, what does that mean? Some of you will be called to the poor. You will. That's your deal. Some of you will be called overseas. You will, and that's your deal, at least for some period of your life. And you can see a couple of things just in those verses. One, if you're called to go overseas, learn how to do something. Like, be useful. Be useful. Learn a skill. Learn a trade. Multiple reasons. One, there are many countries that are closed to Christian missionaries. If you apply to the Saudi Arabian government and say, hey, I want to come and be a preacher, they're going to say, no, you don't get to do that. We're closed to, mission, to Christian missionary activity. They're not going to let you in. If you have a skill or a trade and that country needs that skill or trade, they will absolutely let you in. They will let you come work and you still get to bring Jesus with you when you go, even though that's not what's officially on your travel papers. Learn some. It may be that you're working someplace where um, it's not appropriate for you to get a job. Maybe the, the economic situation or the place where you're going, the unemployment rate is so high, it would be unjust for you to take a job from someone who's local. But there's still skills and, and knowledge and experience that you can bring to the table. There are things that you can learn, that you can help people with in the places that you're going. And I think we see that from Paul. There's something about a skill or a trade or something useful that can help you as you move from place to place. If for nothing else, it can, it can give you a reason for being somewhere. When people say, why are you here? I'm, I'm here to do this. I'm here to help you learn how to farm better. I'm here to help you. I'm, we're, we're here to help with digging wells so you all have clean water. We're here, I'm, I'm a nurse, and I'm here to help with this or that. So my encouragement to you, if you think that's, that's something for me down the road, I'm going to be called maybe overseas. Learn how to do something that makes you attractive to those places where you may be called. And for the church, for those of us who, who aren't called to go overseas and maybe who aren't called to the poor, we need to recognize that people who are called to the poor and people who are called overseas are a lot of times in a position where they can't then pay the bills. 
you can't get a work. There are places where you can't get a work visa. It doesn't matter how much you want to work. You're not going to get a visa. And so you're, you're required in that sense to live off of the generosity of others. People have a calling to the poor. The poor are never going to be able to support the workers who are sent there. They're poor. And so what we want to do as a church, capital C, and individuals in the church is say, are we giving at a level and are we giving in a way that allows those who are called either to the poor or overseas to give themselves to that work? So if you're called, I say learn how to do something helpful. If you're supporting, give so that they don't have to do anything except give themselves fully to their calling. We want it. It's great when Paul's able to say, hey, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to make leather goods anymore. I can shift and just focus on preaching the gospel. It's difficult for people who are either overseas or working in impoverished areas to constantly worry about whether they can pay their light bill or they can keep food on the table. And that's something that we all can do to help. If you're a Christian, I'll say this is maybe as directly as I can. If you're a Christian and you're not giving to that level, if you're not giving to missions, if you're not giving to people who are working overseas, if you're not giving to people who are working in areas that are underserved, you really need to look at your heart. I would say you need to do something. We support 12 or 13 missionaries. You can get the information in the um, welcome room if you want. There may be other people that you know, but I want to strongly encourage you as the church to invest in what God is doing in the world, to make it so that these guys who are going, who are called into these places, uh, can focus fully on the people that they're serving and not have to worry quite so much about whether they can keep the lights on. And again, if you're called to go, learn how to do something helpful. So we see that with Paul. He's in the synagogues always. He's preaching in the synagogue. Of course, he's got people who love him and are responding to the message. And as we've seen in almost every city he goes to, there are other Jews who do not like it. They begin to get abusive. And he says, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not coming anymore. And he walks away from the synagogue. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm shaking the dust off my feet. Your guilt, whatever guilt you are going to experience for rejecting this message is on your head. I've done my job. He doesn't fully write the Jews off. We know that because he continues to go back to synagogues. You can read the letter of Romans. He has great faith that Jews are going to come back to Jesus. But in this instance, it's just not helpful. I'm not going to keep banging my head against a wall. He goes next door, which seems a little provocative to me. It seems like maybe there's another house he could have picked, but he doesn't. He goes next door to the synagogue, and he starts working with non-Jews with the Greeks there and again he meets with great success very interesting he has this dream doesn't seem that he's asking for anything but it says Paul spoke or God spoke to him in a dream don't be afraid keep on speaking don't be silent from with you so he has this this word of reassurance given to him and then right on the heels of that I was thinking about that phrase I've got many people in this city and then right on the heels of that there's kind of this interesting exchange so don't worry, you're not going to be attacked. I've got lots of people in the city. And then he's, at least in the story, he's immediately arrested. So you're, okay, I'm not going to be attacked, it's okay, and then I get arrested. And when he's arrested, he's brought before the governor, which is a higher level of authority than he's stood before before in the uh, past. So in these other cities... When he's been arrested, he's gone before, in our words, he's gone before the mayor and the city council. 
Now he's standing in front of the governor, and the charges are much more significant. In the past, he's been charged with creating a public disturbance, which gets you kicked out of the city, gets you arrested, beaten, those things, which are bad, but they're all personal. What he's being charged with now is preaching something that's illegal. So Judaism is, is an officially recognized religion within the Roman Empire, and so the Jews can practice their religion without fear of getting sideways with the government. And what these Jews are saying to Gallio is, Paul, he's not a Jew. He's not preaching Judaism. He's preaching something else. He doesn't fall under our umbrella. Our, our religious freedom card does not apply to Paul. And if Gallio agrees with them, then suddenly Christianity becomes illegal. And then it becomes much more difficult for the gospel to spread. And because he's a governor, it's not just in this one city that Paul's going to have difficulty. It's in the entire region. And it could be precedent setting. The governors of these other regions, Macedonia and some of these other places may say, hey, well, Gallio has decided that it's illegal And so we're just going to follow him. Rather than me investigating it on my own, I'm just going to go with what he says. So there's a lot at stake in that little exchange. When the the Jews bring Paul before Gallio, a governor, they're asking him to say, they're asking Gallio to rule Christianity is illegal. It's not part of Judaism. What he's doing doesn't fall under our umbrella. So make him stop. And what Gallio says, and he's not a Christian at all, he's not sympathetic to Paul, He just says, I don't care. Not my concern. If you had something significant, if you even had something minor, I'd weigh in. But what you've got is you're disagreeing on names and laws, and it's all, it's a family squabble. And I'm not getting into it. And he runs everybody out. You can see the anti-Semitism that's rampant during this time when everybody, the Greeks, turn on Sosthenes, who's a synagogue leader, and beat him. And Gallio doesn't care. So that just shows you his heart. It's not like he's he's not pro-God. He's not pro-Paul. He just doesn't care about the situation that they're bringing before him, which actually turns out to be really, really good for Paul and for the gospel because it means, in effect, Paul's free. There's no positive statements made about Christianity, but there's nothing negative applied either. So that means just keep going. Paul is, is allowed to continue to do what he's doing, and the other Christians are allowed to continue to do what they're doing because the governor chose not to get involved. Does that make sense? So as I was reading that, and I was thinking about God saying to Paul in this dream, I've got people in this city, lots of them, and then the story that comes right after it is about a guy who's not doesn't seem to be one of God's people at all. Gallio doesn't. But God uses him to accomplish his purposes. He uses him to create space for Paul to do what he's been called to. To do It reminded me of a story in the Old Testament where the Jews have been in exile for 70 years and a king named Cyrus is installed. And Cyrus, somehow, it's almost unprecedented in history, Silas says to this exiled people, y'all can go home. Exiles, don't, they don't get to go home. They're, they're exiled. And the whole point of them being exiled is to dilute the population. So once you send them back home, you, are, you potentially are setting up a future rival. Because you're allowing this ethnic group to regather together. And so everything that an exile does, sending people back home, undoes. It's unprecedented. But Cyrus, who's not a believer in God, he's not a follower of Yahweh, he says to the Jews, why don't you all go home? If you read through the Old Testament, the Jews see that as God's providence. They see God using Cyrus 
to move them back home. It was actually predicted in Isaiah that, he would, that God would raise up someone named Cyrus to do that. Someone who's not, is not his guy in that sense. And I was thinking about that in light of our upcoming election. So we got two choices. What's in you comes out of you. So you can make, I, I don't like getting into politics ultimately, and I mean this as respectfully as I can. It doesn't matter. When I read Revelation, it doesn't matter. God doesn't see Canada and the United States and Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras and Iraq and Syria. He doesn't see that. What he sees is who, who are my people and who aren't. That's what he sees. If you read Revelation, that's what he sees. The lines that he draws are not political and they're not national. The lines that he draws are whose citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven and whose citizenship is not. That's the only line that he draws. And when you read Revelation, the only country that's really mentioned extensively is Babylon, and you don't want to be on that team. You don't. Bad for them. And so in a sense, I can say it doesn't matter. If you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you have no idea how the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah is doing geopolitically. All you know is, are the kings faithful? That's how God judges. This king was faithful. This king was wicked. That's the judgment. Israel was at its height geopolitically under a king named Omri. You've never even heard of him. He gets five verses. And it's when Israel, again, was at their height militarily and politically. And God doesn't care because the guy was wicked to the core. So he just gets glanced over really fast. And so, again, respectfully saying... As I look at the Bible, God doesn't draw lines the way we draw lines. In the Old Testament, he seemed, this is a theory, so we may wind up deleting this from the tape at some point. But my theory, when I read the Old Testament and I see God talking about countries, each one of those countries had a God. Israel had a God, Yahweh. Cush had a God, and Edom had a God, and Philistia had a God. And when one country beat another country, it was saying, my God's better than yours. And the Old Testament is all about God saying, I'm not the God of a country. I'm the God of everything. And so when I think about where we live now in the New Testament, we don't, that's not how our lines are drawn. And when I try to make parallels between what I see in the Old Testament about country, 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 and the New Testament, I think about competing systems with God. Humanism and materialism and secularism and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. That's what I see to me. Those are where the lines are. Those are the philosophical and religious and belief systems that are opposing his work. It's not countries on a map. And so, again, in a sense, it doesn't matter because when we read Revelation, which is the end of the story... It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is who's a citizen in the kingdom of heaven and who's not. And don't be a part of Babylon, for sure. But for, we, we, this is where we live in 2016, and we're in this country, and we have an opportunity to influence the process. I can make a case biblically that says the most Christian and faithful thing to do is to stay away. And I can make a case biblically as a Christian, the most faithful thing to do is to cast a vote for one of those two peaches up on the screen. And so you're gonna have, you've got to decide before the Lord. But let's not try to make either one of those guys a spirit-led, Jesus-loving, submitted-to-God man or woman.
That's okay. We're not, we can't do that. There's nothing that says either of them is looking to God and saying, all I want to do today is please you. There's nothing about them that says that. So let's not try to make it about that. It's not, that's a, that's not good. We can say who's the first loser, but I don't think we want to say which one of these guys has the impeccable character, someone who we would trust to make a righteous and godly decision. We live in a time where you reap what you sow. That's a biblical principle. As a country, not you individually, as a country, if we valued integrity, if we valued character, if we valued honesty, if we valued even competence, these are not the two out of the 320 million who rise to the top. They don't. They're none of those things. What does Samuel say to the Israelites? They say, we want a king. We want to be like all the other countries. And he says, okay, God's going to give you what you want. That's what he says to us. All right, I'm going to give you what you want. That's what we want. Makes you want to move, doesn't it? (laughs) That we live in a place and that's what we collectively want. Because those are the ones that have risen to the... We had all kinds of choices. That's what we get. We reap what we sow. We chose to value, again, collectively, not you individually. We value money, and we value personality. We value getting things done regardless of the results. We value uh, some standard of righteousness that's based on what you can prove in a court of law, not, know what, not what we know to be true, just with common sense. All of these things, it's like that's, what, that's why we have the choices that we have. And to me, when I read Acts 18, I see hope. God can use Gallio, who is not his, to accomplish his purposes. I don't think either one of those two guys is his. And when I read Acts 18, I say, well, he can use, he can use them to accomplish his purposes. When I read the Old Testament, Cyrus wasn't his. And he could use Cyrus to accomplish his purposes. When I go all the way back to Numbers, and this is probably the most accurate description, he could use a donkey to accomplish his purposes. So for us, we're th- I'm thinking, I don't care who you vote for. I don't. It's between you and the Lord. There's some great things on that ballot that you need to weigh in on. There's an amendment about... How about sex trafficking victims like that? Yes, get it weigh in on that and how services for them need to be provided. This one, I don't know. You have to decide before the Lord. Does either one of them get your vote? And if so, who? But ultimately, what I want to say and where I want you to find your hope, it's not in who gets elected. It's not in who gets put on the Supreme Court. It's not in what laws get enacted. Your hope is in Jesus And he can redeem anything. And as the people of God, our responsibility is first to repent of saying, these are the things that we're okay with. You don't have to carry a poster. You don't have to be shrill. You don't have to be judgmental and self-righteous. But in the humility of your own heart to say, what are we doing? What are we doing? That this is... You're giving us what we want, and this is, these are the desires of our heart. 
embodied in these two people who God loves and desires to bring into relationship with him. What I want you to do, (laughs) recognize God does love them. Both of those people were created in his image. He desires relationship with them. So there's what we there's there's hope for them. There's hope for everyone until those until we die. There's always hope for redemption and restoration. But our hope is not in them. Our hope is in him. And he's active and he's working and he can work through a process or he can work around a process. It doesn't matter. He's bigger than all of it. And I don't want you to get bunched up over who wins and who loses and what passes and what doesn't. When think, I, I don't want you to do that. I want your trust and your hope and your peace to rest in the fact that God is at work and he responds to your prayers. He responds to your prayers. You pray, he gets involved. That's better than a vote. Vote, but it's better than a vote. Because you're getting him involved. And he doesn't wait for a majority to act. He's just waiting. On an invitation. And you can issue it. That's my political speech for the year. So, don't clap. Don't clap. All right, we're going to close with this. I was thinking about Paul. He's a stud. He's a greatest missionary in the history of the church, greatest church planner in the history of the church. He heard God audibly. He sees Jesus in heaven. He's knocked down by this light. He hears a voice. At one point he says, I've gotten taken up into the third heaven. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that is. Like, what is that? And he says, I've been there. And he needs to be reassured. Interesting. God says to Paul, don't worry about it. I've got people in this city. You don't be scared. Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, When I got to your city, I came in weakness. I came in fear and with great trembling. This guy, third heaven Paul, audible voice Paul, with my eyes resurrected Jesus Paul says, I was afraid when I got to your city. And I was thinking about if someone like that needs reassurance. And you go back and you look at the eight cities that we've seen Paul traveling over his first two missionary journeys. And six out of those eight, three-fourths of the time, he's gotten run. He's gotten run out. He's either been persecuted or persecution has been threatened. He's been stoned to the point that people thought he was dead. He's been beaten with rods. He's been thrown in jail. I think he's a little shell-shocked. And when the Jews in Corinth, the word is abusive, when they get abusive to him, I think he's going, here we go again. I'm about to get run out of town. And And God, in a dream, says, you're not. You can stay here. He stays for 18 months, longer than we've seen him stay anywhere up to this point. You can stay here. I've got people. You're going to be okay. I was thinking about for us. If a guy like Paul, with that spiritual pedigree... If he needs to be reassured, do you need to be reassured? You might not have the same, in your mind, the same list of experiences that Paul does. You might not have this track record of the miraculous in your life where you can say, Oh, I know God speaks to me, and I know God leads me, and I know God protects me. There was this, when I was in jail, there was an earthquake, and the chains fell off. Like, Paul has that story. You may not have that story. And so, maybe there's a level of, of, of assurance or reassurance that you need. There's some scriptures there up on the screen that Dan is scrolling through. And you can 
Do you need to be reminded this morning? Do you need to be reminded of the promises of God? Do you need to be reminded that he says he's never going to leave you? You need to be reminded that he says he's going to meet your needs. You need to be reminded of the fact that the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within you. That you've been adopted into his family, not because of anything that you've done, but because he's chosen you. And he's called you his own. Do you need to be reminded of the fact that he takes great delight in you? Do you need to be reminded of the fact that his grace and his mercy is new every morning? That you can't exhaust the grace and mercy of God. Do you need to be reminded of the fact that you were adopted by him because of his great love for you, not because of anything you've done, and, and your relationship is, is maintained by grace as well? Do you need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit who lives within you will empower you to live a life of faithfulness and fruitfulness? That the source of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control dwells within you And so all of those things are being cultivated in your heart and will come out of you when you're squeezed. Do you need to be reminded that the power of the one that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you? He can empower you and equip you for everything that he calls you to. There's many things that we know in our head. We get shaken. Satan, life, our own choices, whatever. We need to be reassured. And you see here in Acts 18, God is totally willing to do that. So as we close, I want you to close your eyes if you would. I want you to just ask the Lord, is there a place where you need to be reassured this morning? Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come and that you would speak to us. You would give us grace to discern our own hearts. For some of you, you need to be reassured in this whole political thing. And you need to be reassured that God is on the throne. That Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That God is moving all of history to his, the culmination of his plans and purposes. And that we're not going to thwart that. And nobody else is either. You can, you can read how everything ends. And it's locked up. That's how it's going to end. Not in a fatalistic sense. Your choices absolutely matter. I want that to give you peace and hope and joy in the midst of chaos and unknowns. So you may need to be reminded of that this morning. Some of you may be your political animals. You don't have to agree with anything that I said at all, for sure. But I want you to know, and I do, do have to agree with this, that Jesus is the king. Some of you need to be reminded of things that are much more personal. Again, you know it in your head and you just, you need your heart to agree. You may can probably even know what those things are and just begin to ask the Lord. God, reassure me. Remind me of the truth that I've known in the past.
speak to me in a way that I can understand in the core of who I am. Apply those promises about your character and your activity to my life. So God, my prayer for everyone here, we'd all build on the rock. We don't want to build on sand. So would you remind us what is true of you and what is true of your activity in the world. The places where, we, where we're uh, maybe being shaken. God, I pray that you would shore us up. That you would deepen our roots. That you would strengthen our faith. God, I pray that the things that we know to be true would win over even how we feel at time to time. And God, I pray for every man and woman in this room that the still small voice from heaven would be louder in their hearts than the roar of the enemy in their ears. So come now, Holy Spirit, I pray, and strengthen and encourage and fill up your people of all the people in the world. We're the ones with the surest hope. We're the ones with the deepest joy. And I pray that you would remind us of those things so that we can pour ourselves out for the sake of others. In Jesus' name, amen.